there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. You know, like some of the best things in education or arts programs, things that you see come from grassroots people just deciding we're going to do this and we're going to do it our way. I probably couldn't write very well in class. They wrote very well in their book. It's high-class philosophy, carrying on aspects of caring for the land and caring for each other. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Mudgy Readers Festival, supported by Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales. Produced by Kel Butler and Pamela Cook from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is The Narrative. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri people who are the traditional owners of the land and I'd like to pay respects to Elders both past and present of the Wiradjuri Nation and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians. Hey there, just butting in to give you a little heads up that when we were recording the Mudgy Readers Festival last year, oh, we had one day where there were a couple of technical hitches with the microphones and there were a couple of sessions where we got some really bad interference in the record. Now, one of those sessions we probably won't be able to bring to you because it's just too hard to fix it up. But this one, I felt like the content was really important. The narrative is all about our Indigenous artists talking about our Indigenous stories and their processes as writers and artists. And that's a really important conversation that I wasn't willing to just toss aside. And I think we need to have more of those conversations, not be cutting these conversations out of the equation as much as possible because that's already been done enough. I think I've got the audio to a fairly decent standard. I work really hard. I even upgraded my software and I think it's good enough to go out now. I hope you enjoy. The narrative. Here for the narrative talk with a focus on Indigenous storytelling and how we have always told stories and how we continue to tell them today. I'm Paris Norton and I'm an Aboriginal Arts Programs Manager and a practising artist. I have Alicia, award-winning artist and Aboriginal Arts Development Officer and another award-winning writer. Paul, so thank you for both being here mm-hmm. and looking forward to um, helping everybody get to know a bit more about you guys. So I just want to start off with each of you telling a little bit about yourself and what your practice is. So I'll be kind and I'll go with Paul first. I'm from Burke. I'm Paul Collis and I'm a, a Barkinsy person. Barkinsy people are possessed by that Darling River all the way from the border at Queensland, maybe over into Queensland too to Victoria, into the, the Murray. So that's Barkinsy land. Just look at Tyndale's map. He's got it wrong, and he's got a lot of things wrong in that map. But it's a good start. I reckon we should remap it, <laughs> me and you. <laughs> Change them rivers and take it back street by street. <laughs> I'm inspired by those kids who wrote that scene, design, and uh, they had difficulties at school in learning not with learning so much, but with the practice of teaching. When they were taken out of the classroom, out in the bush and told how those cool fires burn, why they do it that way, the teaching was told. Kids did it, so they practiced it, and they thought about it. 
in class you expected to answer straight away without thinking. It's a different practice. And when they, when they came under what education is called experimental learning techniques, kids excelled. They probably couldn't write very well in class. They wrote really well in their book. It's high-class philosophy, carrying on aspects of caring for the land and caring for each other that we've had for over 100,000 years. Suddenly, the last 200 years where this great big um, disruption has occurred. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I, I tend to move around a bit because I... <laughs> I got the, I got the, I'm like Elvis. I got the shakes. <laughs> I don't think he's shaking much now. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm from Burke. My practice in writing, I don't really have one. I, I, maybe I do. I don't like being in small rooms with the door shut. It's like a cell. I don't. I feel uncomfortable, and it's too lonely in there. So when I wrote my PhD at Canberra Uni, I wrote it in the refectory in the dining room. They had a a desk in the research room with other higher education research students. After about three years of being in the dining room, the white ones that were running the faculty said to my supervisor, look, is he going to use that chair or not? <laughs> I can see him having coffee over there <laughs> with his mates. I used to have coffee with my mates. And anyone was welcome there at that table. So we did a lot of talking philosophy with those other students. They didn't recognise that I was actually doing serious research because the research I was looking at was Aboriginal masculinity today, not as it was reported on by what contents or anybody else in the past. What we see in towns and cities, I think I did a, a reasonable job, but not one way is everyone's way. Some people have different personalities, different languages, different ways to cope in the world. In my novel, I wrote about blokes from a town like this, not a town like Alice, or a town like Dubbo. That's where Blackie's from. He's going back to Dubbo. He's done six years in jail for a crime he didn't commit. He was verbal by a policeman, a bloke called Mick Williams. He's going back to Dubbo to kill him. He's going to, pay, he's going to carry law out. But traditional law. The traditional law is not respected enough in this country. They did have a go at it in the Northern Territory of uh, doing traditional law for payback for, so the communities could settle disputes, except that at some aspect of traditional law, you could be harmed, you could be bashed or have a spear through your leg. That's regarded as double jeopardy because you've already done the time in jail. You can't, get, can't do the time twice. So that's why they stopped that. But that's another oppression in some ways. Like I think human rights whilst they're absolutely essential, they also have oppressed Aboriginal people. I just go on for you to believe The oppression comes when we try to do initiations and if, we, if our practice was to knock a tooth out or to, to scar the body, it's not just random slashing. It's for the sake of cutting somebody. Each line is an authority to, to speak a certain thing. might be the first one could mean that you could trade Second one might be that you could marry. Third one might be that you could carry law. They weren't just random slashes. Uh, they, they announced in a very physical way that that man has gone through a series of changes and then he must carry that law. So when Blackie comes out of jail, he didn't tell him because who was listening anyway? 
and goes back. Now, Mick Williams, did anyone drink port wine? No wine around here. Port, <laughs> one of the great killers of my people. Back in the 60s before we were allowed, before we were Australians. We weren't the first Australians. Do you follow us? My wife follows us. We the last Australians. We came in 67, 68 or something. <laughs> yeah. but I asked Dad one day, I said, Dad, how come you old boys used to drink all that, that port? It's no good for you. He said, well, son, we were allowed in the pubs. We couldn't just sit down like you could, buy a carton of beer, and make around, listen to music. So my practice is I move around a bit. If I've got internet, and I don't care how noisy it is because I put earphones in, listen to music, you know, right. When I'm writing, I can't hear the music. It blocks out all other sound as well. So I can't really be disturbed. Um, Wayne, my mate at uni, big tall boy. He's uh, from Gun and Hunt, that man. He, uh, he has to have silence. I said, mate, you're going to have a lot of silence when you're dead. You'd be. Why can't you stand noise? He said, I just got to concentrate. So I move around. If I got internet, nice coffee. I'll normally just see me window dressing in a coffee bar or shop or something like that. I wrote my, most of my thesis in places like that, away from other people. Alicia, are you similar like, with your practice? In terms of doing it on my own? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, so I do a lot of installation and sculptural works, generally around identity, country, issues that affect us here. Um, so very much related to place and... Yeah, it's usually when the kids are going to bed <laughs> or I've got no kids on the weekend. Um, that's usually when I um, concentrate on doing those things, yeah. And you also work as, for this area, um, the Aboriginal Arts Development Officer. So um, for people who don't know, you could just share the area that you cover? Um, so my region is... so. I live in a Rana Arts area, so I'm an artist. I'd say Paris is my arts officer here. <laughs> <laughs> so when I'm in Arana, I'm an artist and, and I work for Arts Out West. So our region's um, Lithgow down to Grenfell, out to Lake Jellico and across to Peak Hill. Yeah, and so it's, um, it's a good job. It's very varied in what you do. So it could be supporting artists or community organisations. Um, it could be working on arts projects. It could be funding applications, so, yeah, it's, it's a good good job. Yeah. Well, I have a couple of questions that I noted on my phone, so I'm not being rude with <laughs> my phone out for you both. And I'll start with you, Alicia. Just thinking about our cultural heritage and how long we've been telling stories, and I want to say that cultural knowledge has always been shared through storytelling and art for us, and I feel that in the contemporary world we're still practising and personally that tradition of storytelling. Do you feel the same about you, that you, this is another avenue for you in your art and your work to continue your cultural responsibility? Yeah, so I think it's a different way of doing it and in some way there's more freedom. So um, when I was just doing painting, you couldn't necessarily do a painting about coal mining and have that same effect because people sort of didn't, didn't take to it. They didn't want to buy that and put that on their wall. And people would often get turned off by that. Um, so I find with installation work it's a lot easier to make works that sort of draw people in, seduce them with what's beautiful and draw them into what it is and then sort of hit them with what your work is really about. Yes, yeah, so I find that using the arts you can talk about things that you couldn't necessarily say or that people might listen to what you're saying but not necessarily hear what you're saying. So um, with contemporary work um, installation in particular, I think that it's a way to draw people in and 
and sort of get that message across. And often I don't like to be really specific about what my meaning is because I find it interesting people interpret it in different ways as well. So, Awesome. What about you, Paul? I used to practice one way of living in the world. It didn't work for me. By the time I was about 30, I didn't know where I was. I lived homeless in Sydney for about, might have been nine years, sleeping on people's couches, living in cars. I don't know, a combi somebody gave me. Didn't go, but I had a bed in there. <laughs> my police, I had parked at my brother's place at Mascot one day. I'd have a sleep in the afternoon. Kids knocked on my door. And what do you want? Uncle, Uncle Paul, your car's on fire. What? <laughs> a crimson come along and set it on fire because I didn't like my brother. I, I didn't even hear it. I'm deaf in one ear anyway. So the, the idea of trying to be consistent, stay in one place or something, it's a permanency is in my mind. So I'm, while I'm sitting here, I suppose my spirit and my heart is in, not in Burke, but near the river out there. That's where my grandfather is. Um, you know, even though I don't live on out there, and that's become a bit of a problem for us in terms of how, whether we've got a right to speak on country. I was born there. My blood is there. But the land council is a different land council. So you're not a member, Paul. I said, but you're not even in Barkinsy, bro. And it ends up in, not an argument, but and that, a lot of people don't want to take that on, you know, yeah, or even yeah. entertain the idea. So part of my Aboriginality is, is caring for that river and caring for our country. Yeah. I, I hope it does. I, I consciously gave um, nature and Mother Earth almost a lead role in the novel as a character, not as just something in the background something that speaks, that is alive. Um, what's that bloke's name? He lives at Mutajua on the other side of the, the rock in that little small community. And a couple of weeks ago, I think a, a Japanese tourist died climbing up the rock or coming down. They, they, they're going to stop that, I think, in November. You won't be able to climb the rock anymore. But when this blackfellow spoke on the radio, he said a warning out to all tourists. He said, you've got to be careful when you come here. Our country is alive and it will kill you. It's a living thing. And so it's not, whilst I'm not out there physically on the country having arguments with other Aboriginal people, which I, I just refuse to do, um, I'm still consciously aware and politically aware through my writing that I could try and do something about, or at least make somebody aware of one aspect, my aspect of what's going wrong. I think the Darling River, it may never die. It might die. It generally has... Parkinson people before white people got here would never have known that river to be dry, even the longest droughts. We manage water, some of the, the sacred water holes. Um, old men that knew where they were wouldn't even open them up until that drought was in its seventh or eighth year. People would die rather than take that water, which had become such a small quantity but sacred. We made that river sacred too. When the river became sacred, it comes into Barkinsy law. So there are law practices all the way through it. One of the saddest things I've seen was when uh, the river was completely dry at Burke 
it must have been about 2013. Uh, my uncle had passed away. He, he rang me. I could hear, hear his voice. He was, I got out the I said, all right. He's in birth. Yeah, he said, I could never got no water. I went down the Houston. Now, he'd never been confronted with that before. He'd never spoken about the river as in such a, a deep and personal relationship with him until that time and it became critical. The problem that I see is that the water can't get back into the system because all those floodplains taken up by farms and by roads that have been built up so the water's going back the other way or not getting into the river. Stuff that is in the river, farmers got these big pipes. I don't know how many metres around they are. And they've got a, each one's got a metre on it, water metre. They've been breaking the metres so they can't measure how much water they've taken out. They only allowed a certain amount, but they, Ian Cole, one of the, I think, they, I don't know if they had a Royal Commission into it or they're going to. He was on ABC radio four months ago. He, I went to school with him, but he married uh, one of the Buster girls, Buster's American friend that put all the cotton out there. Still there. So that cotton keeps a lot of the water from getting back into the system, too. If you drive from you find you know, so you get past Barramine, I suppose. That's all a floodplain that would have drained back to the Darling River 200 miles away. I don't think we'll ever see another drought as we did in 74 because uh, the, the climate has changed that much. I'm not a client, uh, climate scientist, but I know the patterns through totemic relationships from growing up with animals. I had a fight one time. I'm not much of a fighter. I had an argument with a um, meteorologist. His name was Thaddeus. I didn't like him from the moment I met him. He married an Aboriginal woman, and he used to, he was the brains of the operation, and she was just a handbag, huh? And she was really intelligent, very stolen generation, her and her sister. They were abused in those places. Barbara went on to run uh, New South Wales Home Care. Aboriginal side of Newcastle, New South Wales Home Care. I was one of the branch managers in Newcastle. Thaddeus was saying at a dinner party that they invited all us branch managers. So we're all from the bush. We have a dinner party. <laughs> just sitting around the backyard, he's got the pool there. And I said, I'm in Hollywood here. <laughs> and he said, I suppose he said, and I suppose you're like the rest of them too. You know it's going to rain when you see the ants flying around or something. Yeah, don't you? You know? Or you know that animals can pick up uh, air pressure. Do you know that, Thaddeus? If you talk to me again like that, I'll fucking knock you out, put you in the pool <laughs> so you cool down a bit. <laughs> Barbara said, give it to him, brother, give it to him. I said, you should be standing up here. It's, it's interesting as well. I feel as Indigenous people in conditions where we're either helping people gain opportunities for education or we're creating art that are about our own stories, we're automatically becoming educators. So um, even even now with you sharing bits of yourself and when we're with people, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, we take on that role. And I guess I'm interested as well, Alicia, how you can deal with, I know I've seen it and I've experienced a little bit myself, the expectation of the stories that you're going to tell as an Indigenous person and how you kind of manage that having to... You're thrusted into that lead a little bit, but then also selecting what 
you want to talk about and what, um, yeah, you kind of want to be responsible of in terms of educating? Um, I think sometimes it can be the stereotypes that people assume you're going to do a certain work about a certain thing. I had a dollar for every time I got asked of when am I going to do real Aboriginal art again. <laughs> I'd be rich, wouldn't have to do anything. <laughs> um, but for me, I just, I guess I take what people think and say I'm bored, but then I, I've got to do what I, I feel. If I don't feel it, it doesn't work. And I guess just from the very nature of the lives that we live as Aboriginal people and the issues that we face, mm. we're educating people every day, you know, whether it's just... You know, some of the works I've done have been about my everyday life raising my nieces and nephews. And so that those exhibitions have sort of educated people about a system that that a lot of Aboriginal people deal with and mm. things that go on that they wouldn't necessarily have otherwise known about. So I think it's just, I guess I do works that I feel in the moment and hopefully people will learn from it. Um, and then sometimes I learn from people from what they interpret it as, and which can be a totally different thing to what I thought. And so I guess it's a two, it can be a two-way learning thing as well. So it's a kind of answer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I know myself I had a situation where I was being interviewed and they asked me when did I know that I was an Indigenous artist and I just said, well, I like to make stuff and I just happen to be Aboriginal. It's a really hard question to answer, you know, and in those um, circumstances, and I know what you mean by things just kind of come to you, and I think my work and Alicia's work can have an Indigenous influence on it because that's who we are and that's our lives. So we're really reacting to environments yeah, and the same and with Ever-changing. Ever I taught in jails for a long time, the juvenile detention centres at Mount Penang at Gosford. And um, Warramai at Broadmeadow in Newcastle, uh, TAFE had a, an outreach program. So I'd only worked during the TAFE term. And generally, I think they, they wouldn't give you 10 hours or more because the pay rate was too high. So I'd work at about eight hours a week. Then I was taken home in a pay packet, but I'll be about $400 during two terms. But over the Christmas period, three months, I'd get no work. It takes about that long to get on the rock and roll, so <laughs> I had all this great knowledge and philosophy going around my head, but I had no money. I still got no money. <laughs> I was at Mount Penang one day, and this young Aboriginal boy from Tari came up to me. He said, hey, Hank, remember me? I said, yeah, you were here last year, eh? I said, you're Jamie, aren't you? He said, yeah. If you do more fucking time than us, you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I met Jamie again before then there at Mount Penang. I met him again at uh, eight years later, Maitland Jail. He graduated to to adult jails. Jamie started to react to the pressure of being a particular Aboriginal with a particular name in a particular town, and that town is Taree. So young young people in I think the late eighties. Young Aboriginal people from Perthfleet Mission broke a lot of the windows in the street, Main Street, and the shops. Burke did that as well. In the 80s, we went out to Burke. They had it all barred up like you were on Lebanon or something like that in the war zone. I tried to tell my supervisors that we are, in fact, in a state of war, if not a state of shock. She said, you can't say that because war operates under these rules. I said, not... Not where I come from. They can be formal and informal, and they keep changing. 
as indeed laws will continually change for a government to be able to operate or feel comfortable in. They'll keep changing the law until it suits them, not whether it's right or wrong. Where as Aboriginal laws, we had 10 major laws. You could call them the Ten Commandments. And those laws never changed. They weren't interpreted any differently. They interpreted the way that they came out when they were first announced. It's interesting when you talk about when you do your thinking and a lot of your work at night. Traditional people would do all their teaching at night. What do we do here? We go to school in the daytime. During the daytime for us Aboriginal people and were former landowners and custodians. We would teach at night when your kids had settled. They would possibly lay around on their mother and father, grandfather's lap go to sleep here in philosophy and law and wake up the next day living that which they'd learnt the night before. All the teaching was gone and were quiet. But we taught about the stars. I got dyslexia, I can only read a bloody roadmap. <laughs> I can't read roadmaps, it's too many lines. <laughs> but my mum could follow the stars, she was a drover, you know, and she tried to teach me. I said, no, they're all moving around, I can't know what you're talking about. And when they read there's a line and somebody else in the sky, I can't find them stars. I don't know where they are. The black ones in Western Australia, a little town called Onslow, on the coast is in the Cyclone Alley. That Pilbara region is regarded by scientists as possibly the quietest place on Earth. Perfect for radio telescopes to listen into outer space. But in order to get the telescopes out there, they had to get the Aboriginal people on site because they had, by then had their land rights legislated to them. How did we do that, they said? We took their artists. So they asked the artists to paint their stories of the stars and they put an exhibition on I went to the exhibition over at Ayatsis, probably the best I've ever seen. I swear you're looking at stars and they're talking to you. It's so brilliantly vibrant. What the scientists found from CSIRO that the stars that the Aboriginal people were talking about weren't the stars that they knew. All of our stories are in the Milky Way. Your stories are in the stars. So there's two really basically different views, like I'm here and there. And, it, and it's interesting to, um, really fortunate that I've had an upbringing where our cultural knowledge and heritage was seen as extremely valuable, but showing our um, Indigenous artists, whether it be theatre, writer and whatnot, that your cultural knowledge has an actually extremely high value yeah. and it is a really sophisticated way of telling story. And to be able to get that balance of doing that and then doing other things like getting your PhD and all those things and having them sit alongside and know that they are equal in sophistication. I, so, I wouldn't have got that PhD unless they were willing to take it on a different way of presenting that which I regard as knowledge. So knowledge is uh, something which can be proven, which is peer-reviewed, a reference points to the stuff you're talking about, maybe a number of references that gives a theme. I said, I can't write that. I said, well, how do you write? I said, I'm just going to write a story. So I've been true to storytelling. The narrative of my thesis work, the theory stuff, not dissimilar to the novel, which is very abstract. But I played myself in the thesis. You're not supposed to do that in doing a PhD, you're not supposed to mention the word I or me. It's not about you, it's about the theory. But if I didn't 
play myself and my grandfather in it, then the knowledge that I was trying to present as what's been the shock, the shocking loss for us men like me. The term they use, um, French term, they say you're living in a state of anomie. Anomie is like a state of anomic, anonymous. Don't know yourself. Don't know yourself in your country. A lot of, when I was doing cultural camps in Newcastle, we took, Jamie was out of jail at, at that particular time. We took him and about 20 other Aboriginal kids from Newcastle and Taree at a culture camp up the Wollombi to teach practice through storytelling. So teach them law through telling stories. Uh, they, they weren't frightened to run around and cop chase them and pull guns out on them. They were brave in town. They out of town, there's no lights. And up there on them, at Wollombi, it's all sandstone. You can't, where that stage is there, if that's where the firelight extended to, beyond that is pitch black, you can't see your head. These kids had never experienced anything like that. Then you could hear these, I'd never heard that either. It was kangaroos hopping. But Paul Gordon from Bree Warner, he was speaking to them in Myanmar language, frightening them. Yeah, you're going You want me to bring him in? Oh, no, no, don't be go sit. <laughs> a big fat kid jumped on my lap and nearly broke my head. He's <laughs> <laughs> oh, about nearly seven foot, that boy now. But those culture camps, through practicing story as a teaching technique, was not only available to us, so we knew it, but very available to those Aboriginal kids. It wasn't speaking in another foreign language. I teach creative writing at Canberra Uni. I tell the students two things about what your writing has to do. Every sentence has to work and every word in every sentence has to earn its place to stay in there. You do that, you'll be a great writer. Don't do that, you have to practice it. But often they'll come with using a language that they don't even know. The wind was icy. It blew right through me. I felt this enormous earthquake of shiver. <laughs> and what? <laughs> I said, who, who, who are you writing that for? Who, who's your intended reader? Well, I don't know. I just wrote it for myself. I would write something that you can understand, or at least I can understand. <laughs> you don't need to have a massive vocabulary, yeah. but you need to be able to use what you've got in the most efficient way. The law is very efficient. Imagine, like, a traditional language, traditional culture, Aboriginal culture. Those 10 laws didn't change. Were they spoken exactly the same way each time they were announced by one of the elders? I don't know. You probably think that they might be changing words to suit that they might be tired and that they cut a word out. I don't know. We don't know. There are so many things that we've lost so quickly in, in that violence in about four generations that we don't remember. We don't remember it because we've also been traumatised. And I think we're still living in a state of shock. Um, yeah. And I think that's what's really important about your writing and your teaching and same with you, Alicia, with your practice and your teaching that you do, whether you recognise it or not, you know, an educator. And although we have lost so much having people and that are leading us like you guys that have the combination of education where we can go from here and really elevating the way that we tell stories. So... You see across the country now we're really utilising theatre, writing, art as a form of telling this stuff and actually giving, I think, 
younger generations a little bit of example of how to take the step in continuing the narrative, that you can use these tools to tell the same stories or traditional stories or your part in that continuation. And Alicia, especially, I see that in yours and showing that we care about our country and we, you know, feel we belong to the land, but it's not that you necessarily have to say those words, but you create works that are inspired by things that are happening here, yeah. to nature and whatnot, and having that conversation. Because by having that conversation about mining, you are talking culturally because there's a connection there. So you, you can be having the same conversation of tradition but in our contemporary landscape. Yeah. When I was teaching in jails, I, 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 I might have been working at Cessnock Jail on that particular time, a lot of Aboriginal people paint in jail. I think it's a form of um, therapy, healing, but it's also a way of remembering. In Maitland Jail, there's a, one of the old sandstone buildings. Jails. One of the blokes that was painting there, I said, when do you paint, brother? He said, the, the little window, the bars, are about 12 foot from the ground, so you can't hang yourself, deliberately put up a long way. When the moon comes across for that one hour, hour and a bit, comes into his cell, he paints in. I said, he painted. He said, on that whatever night that moon comes, I might be thinking about my daughter or about my grandmother. The painting goes to her. I don't sell any of my paintings, he said. He was doing dot paintings. And I looked at a lot of the other guys and they're all doing dot painting. There's a therapy, like a narrative therapy or art therapy that, heels with that, those patterns. In fact, some of the great uh, tech companies in the world are trying to encourage Aboriginal young people to go and work with them on uh, phones and, and computers because they're all in patterns. And if you have a look at the dot paintings from Western Desert and up in the Northern Territory, they're all patterned. These kids have got hundreds of different patterns in there. They don't know it. They didn't need to have a word for each pattern but those patterns run the same way as these computers, those motherboards. So we've been left out. It's only by chance that those things had found out. We're growing up with well, the shock loss of a place in the world, an honourable place in the world, where we were then thrown into a, a very different changing world where we weren't valued as people. A lot of the old people I grew up with in birth, they went quiet before they died. They didn't talk about 10 years. They just were completely silent. They were probably people that could speak four or five languages, most of them from Queensland. They could have told you the history of that country, um, why you shouldn't take water from the great artesian basin. They believe that it cushions the earth around the world. If you drain any of that subterranean water, you'll have a problem not only here but somewhere else in the world. So when there are earthquakes in Pacific or in Greece or in Afghanistan, I'll bet your boats, our senior man, he's just by himself, he just cries. He reckons that the rainbow serpent that made the Darling River, when he sees TV and he sees Loch Ness Monster, he knows that rainbow serpent and Loch Ness talk to each other under the world. So he, he, he made Loch Ness Monster one of our totems in, in some kind of way. But we're connected right across the world, but we just haven't had a chance because the shock has been moving too fast. It's hard to learn another language. I only know English, and I can't even speak that very well. But I understand English a lot better than I speak it. Mm. 
I just I used to read a lot when I was young. I can't read much now. Though. Too lazy. But the, the, when, the, when I studied, maybe when your paintings might might announce the same kind of things, I studied the things that I enjoyed, and then found out that I wanted to know more about them. So the theories became ever more increasing. But I didn't let the theories stay in Western culture. I possessed those as belonging to me. Mm. I think that's one way to keep, as we've done with stories. Aboriginal people have been true to storytelling. Right, even now, we haven't changed that. When those kids did that design, they were still using storytelling to tell you about philosophy in, in writing. One of my supervisor at work, a woman called Jennifer Crawford, she's a poet and an academic, good one too. She said, look, I'm really worried about uh, Archie to be involved in this research project. I said, why? <laughs> well, ethically, I'm asking you to write in English a language which has killed yours, even the technique of writing. Am I traumatising? I worry about that. And no one had ever spoken to me like that, being concerned about the ethics or, uh, or even the problematics. So that at the moment, there's a lot of protocol stuff being, particularly through arts, has been announced through arts law that must, uh, I don't know whether everyone will listen to them or not. No, but. And I think that there is that associated, um, I guess, trauma with some things like that. Mm. But I'm, I'm really seeing the benefits of using that as a tool in myself that although this might present something to me that's reminiscent of a story I've heard of my family that, you know, where it was a very traumatic event, I feel it is my responsibility as an artist and a younger person now leading to really take that and use that as my tool and say if this is a form of communication, you know, I'm going to use that to tell the story because, you know, it's our responsibility to keep telling them. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I wanted to live my own life, be loose and wild, but I could read and write. My mum couldn't read. My dad would go to court for other people sometimes because he'd been in court for a lot of times. They knew court, but he could also read and write. So, so often it was the difference between an Aboriginal person going to six months at Bathurst, a town they didn't know, um, or not going to jail by, by his representation. But to have an education, it, it should come with a, a, a responsibility, not just a, a privilege. So I tried to, when I haven't wanted to be honourable or, you know, I just want to go and get drunk or something, I want to be out of it. Why am I bringing me back? Yeah, and talking about comments on that cultural obligation through what we do, or not obligation, responsibility, really, and taking that on and understanding the effects of telling a story. Just bait and then what that has on Indigenous, non-Indigenous people and taking that very seriously because what we put out into the world often stays. And with your work and when you had the Home Ground exhibition in Dubbo, that was really interesting as well because it was personal but it was something that I felt was talking about an issue that in some way we're all being affected by. But putting it out there and I feel like it's left an impression on me and certainly people have done it. You've, that story is forever now yeah. in that space. Yeah. So if you want to share a little bit. Um, yeah, so <coughs> the exhibition was called Do We Yellow and it's, which is in Rotary to Talk Straight um, and it was basically talking about um, Aboriginal kids in out-of-home care so who've been removed from their families. And I chose to do that at the time because 
it were six of my sister's kids that had been removed and at the time I was developing that exhibition, two of those kids had been placed with another family, um, not placed with their brothers and sisters, so we were going through the process of going to court and fighting together those kids all together. So because we were doing the whole deal with facts and court and the rest of it, mm. couldn't really, well, even now, you still, I still think before I speak when it comes to dealing with that whole situation because the reality is um, I don't have guardianship of, of those kids. Their parental responsibility is with the minister. They own those kids and they could take those kids now if they wanted to. So, um, But I wanted to talk about that in the exhibition. So the works which I did sort of talked about the, the way that you feel as carers, the way that kids feel, how you feel that you don't have a voice, um, the way that you're treated within that system, the enormity of the situation, you know, with at the time it was um, over 16,000 kids on any given night ran out of home care, yep. Aboriginal kids. Um, so it was developing works that sort of gave a voice to, to us as people within that um, system and I deliberately didn't put any text or artist statements with those works because I wanted people to think about that. Um, so, oh, yeah. It's a form of communication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think even with the zine, like with, with our kids doing that, like Paul said, like a third of those kids can't read and write properly. Mm. None of them could probably sit down and read a book. They all have issues of varying degrees. But they're like dead set, real serious. That It's like their responsibility to teach other people because they went on their cultural burns and, you know, we took them out to give them sky stories. We took them out on country to... You know, we had elders go and teach them of how to pick your tree for a corn and when you pick the tree, what side of the tree, how you look after the tree after you're taking the corn. So they learnt all that. So that was something special that was given to them. And so they've realised that everyone in the community didn't get that. So through their artworks, they've, they're sort of teaching other people about that. Very generous. Isn't yeah. So even though yesterday they didn't turn up for their launch. <laughs> you don't know to put kill me now. They <laughs> <laughs> They were um, um, at a canoe-making workshop and I was like, well, I can't go, so I can't, ta- I can't remember all that. You've got to remember this because you've got to be able to come back and teach other people. And so they were, like, really serious. <laughs> Apparently I got phone calls last night and they were really serious. And I'm like, paying attention and did you see this? And they made sure they split up to go to different things so that they can then come back and, and teach people. And so that they're going to do the same thing. They're going to do artworks to be able to show that because, yep. you know, they don't want to do anything like this where they're sort of, you know, up set, front and centre talking in front of people but they're quite happy to do that in artworks and then talk about that to people. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a really powerful um, way of communicating, yeah. I think, through yeah, the arts, definitely. whether that's written or whether it's yeah. it's a visual thing. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think across the arts what makes it's what makes writing and visual arts and theatre and whatnot so special is that it's not about um, the people who are often telling the stories are communicators before they are speakers. Anybody can speak on something, but to communicate and connect with someone is a different thing, and I think that's the difference sometimes. Mm. Sometimes in a classroom it's more about, can be about speaking, but when you bring that other element it's about communicating and really making sure that message gets across. Before you go, let me ask you a question. You've been yeah, asking yeah. a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, you were supposed to be on the panel. Yeah. Go. You are supposed to be getting grilled too. No, I worked that well. <laughs> Yeah, you're an arts law person and obviously a person with great renown. Have you heard I'll of, take that for now. Have you heard of the Have you heard of Close the Gap campaign? Yes. yes. You know that New South Wales Canberra Education State Education is not doing Close the Gap this year. 
they've changed their, changed their philosophy. They said it's too negative. We don't want our, our kids to be traumatised or held down by negativity. I said, what are you going to do? He know how long it took us to get that close to gap to be recognised as a real thing. I used to work in education in my early life. But it wasn't just my decision, Paul. Yeah, fair enough, but by not closing the gap, you're not going to fill that space of success by just going to something that you're going to probably burn out again in another three years. I think we've been held back in those political moments. Each year we have a NAIDOC week and old parliament house is empty. Two houses are empty. I've been trying for the last 10 years to get government to give for a two-week period the house, those two houses of parliament to all the Aboriginal languages from around the country. So we could get together and argue where our heads off if we like. Maybe not, but talk about our philosophies and our identity. Work out some of these things about arts law. And we, you need time, but that's all you need really is time and a place to do this stuff. Um, I think we have to, like I said, the stories are there. Um, the knowledge and culture is there and we do have things to say. And I think it's about, for me, it's about us taking control of the way in that. So don't rely on the government grant or rely on the please come and exhibit at our gallery. I think we need to think of alternative ways of doing things and just do it ourselves. You know, like some of the best things in education or arts programs, things that you see come from grassroots people just deciding we're going to do this and we're going to do it our way and, and this is why we're doing it. And I think that that's what we need to do across um, all genres is to take control and own ownership and, and just do it our way, you know, and, and whether that's, you know, on country or whether that's in a, a gallery in Sydney or, you know, whichever way it is, I think that we've just got to stop waiting for things to come to us and we've got to push forward and do those things ourselves. I, I think we've got to learn how to, how to manage that. Mm. We, we've never had to. Oh. We were managed. We're waiting for the crumbs that fall from the table mm. instead of um, going after what we're, or doing what we want. Taking a seat at the table. Yeah, yeah. So I think that mm. that's what I would like to see is across art forms that... Um, that people step up and do that for ourselves. Yeah. Well, thank you all thank for you listening to us chat about this and we hope you've taken something away to either continue to think about or clarify. So thank you for your time. If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgee, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, and the Feminist Writers Festival Sydney. So jump on onto our website. You can also find Rights for Women and Rights for Festivals in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up to date with all the latest information about the episodes for both on facebook at rights for women or on twitter and instagram at w4w podcast thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals they're a really important part of our writing reading and living community 